How do you find joy? Well, she's right here. I would like to welcome you to season three of the Joy of Learning podcast. Hearing and elevating the stories and voices of others is of utmost importance in such an unprecedented time. These stories will challenge your perspective, provide encouragement, help you to see beyond the obvious, and resonate. So grab coffee, relax, and prepare for an opportunity to take joy in learning. I am thrilled to share Founders Corner with Helen Adelson. Helen is a visionary and thought leader with a desire to solve deep and complex problems in society. She provides incredible insight on retaining top talent, the evolving workforce, and the extraordinary growth and impact of Care Academy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Helen Adelson, CEO and founder of Care Academy, has built a career driving outcomes for adult learners and finding meaningful ways for them to engage in learning. She launched Care Academy to unite cutting-edge education strategies with the unique needs of the historically underserved caregiver community. To date, More than 200,000 direct care workers have completed over 1 million Care Academy classes, and the company is aiming to reskill more than 1 million new home care workers by 2023. The company has been named one of the most innovative edtech companies in North America by Holland IQ and was a prior global winner of the MIT Future of Work Challenge. In 2021, Care Academy was ranked as Inc. 5000 Company, a recognition of America's fastest growing private companies. Adelson has previously worked at Pearson Education, Teach for America, and the Boston Public Schools. She was named to the 2020 Fortune 40 Under 40 list and serves on the board of the Caregiver Action Network. She is a frequent industry speaker and a fierce champion of home care and an advocate for the direct care worker. Adelson earned a BA from the University of Notre Dame in politics and Arabic studies and holds an EDM in education policy and management from Harvard University. Welcome to the Joy of Learning podcast. I am so excited to have Helen Adelson, the CEO of Care Academy here with us today. How are you doing, Helen? I'm great, Joy Nicole. I'm even better with my starting off my morning with you. So I'm, I'm excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is wonderful just to have some time to talk with you and, and just converse, especially in this ever-changing world that we're in right now. I mean, earlier, we in, our, in the beginning, we started a little bit of a discussion on the hybridization of the work environment. And I, I there were so many points that you brought up inside of there. And is it okay if we start off in that direction? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yes. And so um, you, this quote you just shared, you said, talent diversity can be anywhere. So could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, I, um, this has been a mantra of mine and I feel like it's a thought that I, I need to flesh out. Um, 
And, but it's been just a, a, a belief that's become even more resilient over the course of the last year that really the winning edge, as you talk about, you know, a landscape, especially here in technology where productization, creating, you know, new companies is getting easier and easier and easier and easier, you know, the way that companies win is through diversity. And I think mm. we frame diversity a lot as especially in the wake of George Floyd and in the wake of Black Lives Matter and historically we framed diversity as, oh, the thing to do, you know, hire somebody from DEI, you know, mm-hmm. suck in air, have a quote, you know, no shame to anyone, but um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> um, my, my belief about, um, you know, how, companies operate and win and seeing other companies operate and win because I'm very pragmatic and I look for data points and there's a lot of confirmation in the data around um, diverse teams, whether you're talking about gender or ethnic diversity, Mm -hmm. uh, diversity of class and background are companies that ultimately win because they have perspective, right? Mm -hmm. They have perspectives about the customers, they have perspectives about trends, they can pull companies into what matters most for consumers. And so for us, a, a, a forcing factor of getting that diversity of pipeline of talent is really in the geographic diversity, right? Mm-hmm. We know that I was a you know, sociology, cum, political science major and talk mm-hmm. a lot about dem- demographics, but you know, demographics are different and disparate even within towns, even within communities. And so if we're going to avail ourselves to talent and be hungry for talent, Mm -hmm. um, it's about creating the kind of company that people can project themselves in Mm -hmm. and offers them flexibility and fully values who they are um, and is transparent with them. And so we've been trying to even more, I believe we've always been this way, but as we scale, double down on using this moment and never wasting a good crisis mm-hmm. to really think about how we wrap our arms around where talent can come from uh, and then adjusting ourselves as a company to meet the needs of that talent. But ge- geographic you know, span and creating a remote first culture, I think is inherent to being able to attract that geographic diversity. You know, and I I think it is always from a place of pride and humility. So both things that one, you know, I think by virtue of being, you know, a woman of color from an immigrant background, I think about diversity, but I also think from a place of humility, we can always afford to double down on those things, right? And remove, oh yes, we've done well, you know, traditionally um, in terms of thinking about the various aspects of diversity, whether you're talking about having members of our team and in leadership, and I also put in leadership, it's not enough to have pictures of folks in teams mm-hmm. um, who are from the LGBTQ yeah. uh, plus like background, IA and plus background, um, whether it's talking about, you know, class, right? Where are folks mm-hmm. coming from in terms of how they identify? But I we're moving away and I think the pandemic has wholly shifted. Yes. You know, I grew up where my parents went to work in a certain aspect of ta- town and, um, you know, we have business parks and there, you, it, every single community has a business park, right? Yes. And then you have the suburbs that are sort of built around that. 
Um, so people migrated to where work is. Yeah. And within less than a year, a whole shift to people like work going to where people are, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, for us, it's, it's, it's figuring out how work works for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be, I think there's a lot of, you know, gnashing of teeth and hand wringing around when we talk about diversity and remote work, because people think about sort of the big things, right? The big overtures, but I think it's even in the small things. And I take a lot of stock in the small things that companies can do. Um, so for instance, in our company, I like to always talk very tactically, right? Um, I have a, a wonderful new SVP of ops, uh, Robin Lunsford, who joined our team. And I said, look, you know, I think I've thought of some of these things, but now you're going to take it like, and take it a thousand percent and, and figure out ways in which we can double down on the kind of culture that I'd like to build. And, you know, within the first couple of weeks, she said, look, Helen, we're, we have these sort of 9.30 a.m. Um, show up times for our Monday meetings, right? Um, we're going to change that to 10. And the reason we should do that is because that 30 minutes of time impacts, you know, how families show up or, or parents of young children show up um, after dropping their kids off from school. We have West Coast people who are showing up to a meeting essentially at 6.30 in the morning, their time, right? Um, but that timing can make the difference in terms of just people's affect and how they're ready to engage, you know, in that time, right? And it has reverberative effects. And sure enough, that 30 minutes has garnered like so much praise and moving it to that time. So I see it as a huge win for the company, um, but it is having companies and having the ability for leaders to kind of have their own sort of mindsets of what should happen when challenged. Um, and it, that 30 minutes is indicative and has reverberations uh, across the company, for different demographics, whether you're you know, a single parent, we have, we have single parents, we have um, parents who are uh, parents of young children, we have the West Coast folks, um, and it's been good. I mean, even for me, right? What's 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 often when we think about diversity, we should think about the big and the small things that we can do to attract and keep talent, and also imagine that whatever we do in the spirit of being diverse is actually good for everyone, right? Um, and can be good for everyone. So I, I'll even be like, I yes, and even being more blunt, I think companies that think and are touched by what we've what's happened for the whole world in the last you know two years, um, leaning into some of those things and making that part of their culture, those are the companies that will win, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of if there's any dichotomy to take away from from this moment is that mm-hmm. you know if you don't change in some way and you go back to things as they were in February or in the U.S. at least February of 2020, yes. then you miss the point and you're going to miss the boat. So yeah, it's it's time to move forward. And so I wanted to ask you a question. So how are you finding joy? So what moments do you relish in on a daily basis? I am learning. I love that question. And I think that's such a beautiful, like you've got the brand and it parallels perfectly. I love that. Um, I I'm finding joy in really small things. Um, I think because 
light, and I think the pandemic also changed that. Like, and, and I, I've, you know, you're, you're sitting in your home, you're having more time to reflect um, and think about the, what matters and why it matters. And um, I am, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm a busybody. And so I naturally, you know, would find and want to do a million things and run in a million different directions pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, because you're so in the weeds of things, you know, um, your life becomes uh, more so taking stock of bigger milestones, right? And so it's those big things that you frame everything by. Um, I'm a consummate goal planner and goal writer. And so everything was, okay, well, I got to this and we're here and it's great. We got to this thing and it's here and it's great and whatever else. But I think, you know, as of March of last year, I've had so much time to slow down and commit to journaling and um, really building consistency around, you know, my routine um, and and relishing the routine, right? That's the normalcy that I found in the midst of the pandemic is making new routines. Um, you know, making my bed in the morning is the first accomplishment, right? And being mm-hmm. able to, you know, uh, say a prayer of gratitude in the morning and, you know, um, take a cup of coffee out to my balcony and just mm-hmm. like, look at how great. And the fact that, you know, we've, by grace survived a pandemic, yeah. right? And yeah. my family is, you know, um, is, is, is okay. Like, you know, thank God. And so um, I have, and it makes you more even grateful for the bigger things that happen, right? And more patient yeah. for the bigger things that'll happen. So I, I think for me, finding joy is in the joy of um, having a habit of gratitude for mm-hmm. things that yeah. I would have taken for granted, you know, um, I took for granted um, before March of last year. So, yeah. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about Care Academy. So what inspired you to create a company focused on empowering caregivers to learn how to deliver the best care to older adults? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I'm fortunate in that, you know, we get a lot of credit at Care Academy for, for building something that, you know, is sort of, you know, revolutionary or is, you know, um, and, and in a lot of ways, I think though our approach is that way. However, I always want to put that light and put that stage back on the fact that you know, this country and I mean, throughout human history, caregivers, largely women, I think that's changing a little bit now, um, have been, you know, the backbone of providing excellent healthcare, right? Of making, you know, basically keeping people alive, right? And, and making sure that they're thriving, whether you're talking about a direct care worker, um, you know, which is been part and parcel of the economy of this country since um, women of color and black women were, were brought here, right? Um, and, you know, till today, right? We are learning more and more that, you know, family caregivers account for um, over half a trillion dollars of oh, wow. our economy, right? Um, so just from a sense of that, 
Um, we're actually at Care Academy, we're, 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 our work is essentially projecting a light on what's already been there and what matters most. Um, we are actually, as a, as a country and as a healthcare system, realizing that healthcare actually happens, majority of healthcare is happening outside the four walls of a hospital. Mm-hmm. And those who are doing the caring for are essentially caregivers, right? Um, I believe that essentially our technology not only highlights the value of that work ultimately, if we do this right, um, but it also provides a level of connectivity between the value of that work that is sort of old healthcare, but in our new healthcare system, even more valued um, to, you know, that four walls of the hospital, right? How do we make, we're having conversations now, finally in the last five to really 10 years of healthcare about how we build systems around people to ensure that they don't go to the hospital, right? And they're staying well within their communities. Um, and caregivers have always been central to that. And you know, we believe ourselves to be a caregiver-centric platform, um, that if you do well by caregivers, all other things follow. Mm. Um, how do we connect the dots by that? And I've always, um, again, perspective matters. So I'm, the fan, I'm the, a child of, of immigrants who um, you know, came to this country and had to um, make their skills and competencies and talent and intelligence talk back into the system, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, we do this on a, on a meta level. We, we talk a lot about building skills of people, especially um, um, under, you know, represented people or underestimated people, as Arlen Hamilton likes to say. Yeah. Um, but we do also a poor job of recognizing the skills and talents that those folks already have, right? And I talk yeah. very often about how caregivers contain multitudes, right? I think people contain multitudes. And it's um, at, at Care Academy, we think it's incumbent to talk about um, the workforce, not only as workers, but mm-hmm. as folks who offer a talent that can be having a, a multiplicative and accretive impact on the health of individuals, right? And, and helping people thrive. We're just bringing attention quantifying, recognizing, scaling people um, in order to do more of that work. That's why I think it's absolutely important. My my parents came to this country with skills and talents. They built back their skills and talents. We believe that we can be the platform that really helps recognize skills and talents of folks who have really gone unrecognized and offer billions of dollars of impact into our healthcare system and really leverage that. You know, caregivers, by by way of providing care giving, right, um, it is to give of yourself, you know, your sort of your time and your talent, right? Um, Caregivers do extraordinary things that I think are really unheralded on um, a day-to-day basis, whether you're talking about someone who's been, who is a direct care worker um, or who's been a family caregiver, right? Um, and so that means, you know, sort of your time, your attention, your thoughts, um, and your skill sets, right? What we do at Care Academy, but the time and attention piece is already given just in the nature of the work that is happening. And so we are, we're privileged to work with, you know, hundreds of thousands of caregivers to uh, amplify their skill sets, right? To really invest their whole selves. They give us 
their time. And we want to use that really wisely in terms of building their talent and skills and making sure that they're recognized for that too. So we think we play um, you know, a small part, but a very critical part in the value of, of, mm-hmm. of caregiving. And with caregiving, do you feel that a shift, and of course, I'm thinking a little bit about American society and culture, do you think that there is a shift taking place where we're recognizing how important that is in our society and how necessary it is? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I you know, I, um, I'll come back to it again, but I, when I look back on just even the last, you know, 16, 18 months, um, and I'll look back maybe in 10 or 20 years and I tell the story of Care Academy, um, we already saw all of these trends over the last five to 10 years. And there was already a steady drumbeat, but this pandemic just completely opened up all of the cracks, right? Um, For the first time ever, we were having article after article, thought leadership after thought leadership, whether we're talking about legislators, CEOs, having to have a concerted and ongoing worry and concern around, you know, um, the roles of caregivers and and the roles of of, um, women largely um, being disrupted, right? We had, I think the statistic and, you know, I stand corrected, um, you know, we need to go back. Um, we had up until 19, uh, two, two workforce that completely upended by the pandemic because of largely caregiving issues, right? So women left in attrition from the workforce and they're estimating it'll take us about another decade to decade yeah. and a half to get back to where we were in 2019, right? Yeah. As far as the workforce um, and women in the workforce and participation. Um, and that is, you know, that is a, it's a, it's a pretty terrible thing if you're an employer of anyone, right? Let alone speak of, of, of caregiving. So caregiving is not just relegated to the discussion of women and participation. It has reverberations and impact, whether you're talking about caregiving and service work, whether you're talking about sort of white collar work, if someone doesn't have access to someone who cares for either you know, an older adult loved one, a disabled loved one, or a child, um, you is essentially miss out on a team member, yeah. on you know, an employee um, for a really long time, right? And so caregiving and the impact of caregiving is all of our issues, right? Yeah. For everyone, for every employer. And so I, I, I think if, if anything, um, we've seen a complete, we've already been, historically it's been there and it's been sort of in the background, but the, the, the pandemic completely opened up the conversation and it's now undeniable the impact that, that caregiving and quality caregiving um, can have if we have it or if we don't have it. Yeah, I have worked professionally as a caregiver, right? And so I economically, you know, in those moments where caregiving is largely as a professional work, you know, been largely transitive and, you know, we're working to change that. But, you know, it was those moments where I was working, you know, to supplement my income as a teacher. We both were Teacher America teachers. Um, and also while I was in college and graduate school where I was working with older adults and I was working with children. Um, and it never, 
I appreciated doing it and I love doing it. And it actually, it shows up even now, right, where I'm no longer formally in caregiving, where I do have an ongoing concern for, for, for folks, older adults and folks who are often sometimes not seen um, in, in situations. But um, yes, I having had that personal experience, you see the impact on the life of the person that you're working with. I've worked with um, patients who had dementia and clients mm-hmm. who had dementia, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, it was, if I did not show up, mm-hmm. then everything was really upended for a lot of family members, right. Yeah. Um, or their family members and, and folks were so appreciative of having, you know, the ability to, you know, be able to attend to other aspects of their lives or their working lives. Um, because of having like a steady and stable caregiver, right? Who they knew their loved one would thrive with and who really was attentive to the needs of their loved one. Um, so I, I, I've seen it in all, my own professional and in my own personal life too, yeah. um, how, how much that matters. Yeah. And so, and I'm just gonna weave in another question. Um, I'm thinking about our parents and grandparents. They are aging in place for the most part, or aging, and they're making decisions to age in place. And so how, how can we encourage um, millennials, I would say more of our generation, to really begin to engage in discussions on care options with our family members? That's a great question. And I actually, I think we have no choice but to engage in that discussion, right? We, um, over the next 10 years, um, Millennials will comprise, I believe I heard a statistic that is roughly about 75% of the workforce, right? So in that movement and in that shift, when you are the workforce, right, you have a whole set of concerns, including caregiving and care options. So I think that it's not only just millennials, but it's also the employers of millennials and all everyone has to be engaged in this discussion of creating flexibility, of creating affordability mm. of care options. And yeah. I mean, the system that we live in, it, it, it's not only the discussion, it's also the discussion on how to, basic things of how to afford, you know, what that care option is and how to plan for it, right? And how to save for it and who pays for it. Mm. So often it's, it's not just even in an intergenerational conversation, it's an employer to employee conversation it's a sibling to sibling conversation yeah. on, you know, what are our options? How do we understand our options and how do we plan accordingly for our options? And, you know, I'm saying this as, um, you know, someone that's having sort of discussions with, um, you know, uh, loved ones and family members about sort of where they want to do next and where they want to go and who wants to move where, um, but also as an employer whose employees absolutely have the same concerns that I do. And then how do we also provide a level of flexibility? How do we think about, for instance, and very pragmatically, you know, um, uh, employee benefits that allow for that level of flexibility and planning. So I think it's having an, I think we'll have no choice as um, I just heard, uh, by the way, Joy Nicole, that we are termed as uh, geriatric millennials. I said, I would keep that. I rebuke that. I said, no, no, no. Um, 
So we're geriatric millennials. Um, I said, that's, I don't know if I like that. Um, <laughs> I prefer, I prefer earlier millennials. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. My, my brother was born in, in 95 and I think the cutoff is roughly about that time too. He's like a little later on. So yeah. Um, so I, yeah. <laughs> I heard that term and I was just like, what do you mean geriatric? I mean, we got the best of both worlds. Like I remember a rotary phone. What? I mean, <laughs> and we're the last of them. These kids don't know what a rotary phone is. Um, it, it, <laughs> in any case, I think, I think we are already having those discussions because you either gonna, are going to be able to plan for it and let's, yeah. you know, it, that has a level of economic comfort attached yeah. to it or you're going to be blindsided by it, which often people are, um, you know, care in America tends to be very episodic. Um, and I think employers, I think that millennials can be the generation that gets outside of episodic moments of care. Something happened, yeah. something is upending this moment and say, let's just plan for it. And it doesn't have to be the worst conversation. It's a matter of maybe even approaching it from a, you know, mom and dad is fine, are fine. Um, our, my grandparents are fine, but let's plan for how they stay fine, right? How, yeah. Let's plan for myself, right? Yeah. And I think care, caring, sometimes we think so much about the longitudinal caring that sometimes we don't think about, you know, some of the moments of care. Mm -hmm. um, I have, um, you know, girlfriends and, and uh, friends who are having children and mm -hmm. having to take maybe a little bit more time, right? Because, you know, they're having maybe children later in life. And that means also finding care for themselves as they, you know, are recovering and things like that. So I think that um, part of what we're looking at too is, is helping people have better conversations and more informed ones, but it's incumbent on everyone. I think we're already in a place where millennials are starting to engage because they have to. Yeah. I think the conversations that um, folks are having about planning for care, it, it, it is a continuum, right? And okay. so doesn't have to be fraught with, you know, the binary. I remember I, growing up watching conversations and care planning was essentially like staying in your home and when do you go to the nursing home? And it's, that's not it anymore, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. No, yeah. no, that, that's true. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. it, it was that, or it was this sort of, oh, you're retiring and then you go to a retirement community. And yeah. Maybe nursing, like that was it. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, and there are increasingly so many options, right? And so, you know, if you want to, there, there are, you know, shared living models of that are not necessarily fully fledged retirement, you know, communities, but are enable people to live in their home and share care between multiple, you know, uh, folks in different units of care. Um, it is, um, you, you know, maybe having some respite uh, care come in in addition to siblings working in a concerted effort to manage the care of the individual, right? But I really urge folks not to take an episodic approach of not to have the, dis not, not have the discussion. Yeah. It is about, you know, if things are fine, let's plan on how we stay comfortable. Where, where are the resources going to come from? Um, do we have, are we really looking sort of under the hood of our benefits? Because you'd be surprised how many people don't check massive amounts of employee benefits that go unused, right? Yeah. Um, towards caring for a loved one. Um, but there's so many more models. 
We also have a, in the last five years, um, an economic and policy change and shift that's happened in terms of how we afford care for Americans um, that's shifting to other means of, you know, whether it's Medicare Advantage plans that give some level of flexibility. And we're really working through the early days of making those systems work for people. And I think the pandemic has also really pushed that conversation ahead. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited and enthused by the ways in which different models and different payment models and opportunities mm -hmm. to help people care are shifting. Did you know that Care Academy has a podcast? It is named Home Care On Air. There are three episodes available right now to stream. You can stream this podcast on Spotify, Amazon Music, Buzzsprout, or wherever you get your podcast from. Check it out. What was your experience like speaking at TIE Boston? And could you tell us more about the growth and development of Care Academy? Yeah, that, that um, the experience is great. Um, it was such a candid conversation. And I, whenever I speak, I kind of make sort of commitments in my head, right? Um, whether it's doing, you know, your show or doing a panel to be, to show up as authentically as possible and to be really pragmatic in terms of advice giving. Yeah. Um, I think there's a perception, I think I, I have a responsibility in that there's a perception of who does entrepreneurship, who can be successful in entrepreneurship. And um, I think that I, I play a part as do many other women who've come before me and who are with me and who are coming up behind me in changing the perception of who does innovation, right? And so mm -hmm. I, and, and, and also to just be very practical, right? I get very strategic to tactical on purpose in terms of opening up a little bit of the curtains um, behind entrepreneurship because other people did that for me. And I feel like we don't do that often enough. We, mm -hmm. we tell great stories of entrepreneurs. Yes. It was this, and then it was this, and everyone <laughs> can be Mark Zuckerberg, right? But we don't really talk about the pain points and those mm -hmm. stories are worthwhile, but then also what to take away from those stories. So um, I, I appreciated it because it's another opportunity to just put that in practice. And it's been a while since I've done a panel, like a live panel, especially like, you know, um, in the midst of the pandemic. The, before, you know, Care Academy has gone through so many different stages and we've been really fortunate to have investors who believe in, you know, uh, the vision that we're painting of what the world could be, right? A world that is empowered and led by a healthcare system, led by caregivers, right? And having full insight into their value. Um, and so um, we raised um, very early on in our journey from angel investors who largely knew the power of caregiving, who were part of our journey. We're really fortunate to be part of Techstars Boston and yeah. um, a wonderful cohort of other founders. And I find the some of the best advice and relationships that and, uh, as a founder that you can build is with other founders mm -hmm. who will be honest with you about their journeys. Um, and in turn, you have to be honest about like where your journey is and open up that as much as possible. So I really appreciate that. Um, in terms of raising the Series A, 
Um, they're a set of milestones that are really market driven in terms of, you know, we are a B2B SaaS company that has, you know, uh, a mission. Um, I think it's really, it's fun building a company that has both mission and margin, right? It is yeah. being able to say that this is the world that we're going to create. And if we do that right, um, this is going to be a company with like really great outcomes financially and also in terms of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it was finding folks who align to that story. Um, and we have a, a set of investors who align to that. And I think that you know, when, if you as a founder are building something, it's finding investors who, uh, well, one, it's making sure as you're raising either the seed or the A or whatever that may be, um, that you're tying back into kind of what the benchmarks out are out in the market. And in a lot of ways from both a revenue perspective, we were doing that. It was also finding in every stage of what we're building, um, I think about investors as partners. And I think people tend to think, think of investors almost as sort of customers or bosses. Yeah. And I don't find that dynamic or I don't go into fundraising with that dynamic in mind, right? Mm-hmm. I am building something with you. You are mm-hmm. you know, releasing your not only actual capital, but your intellectual capital, your social capital mm-hmm. in order for us to both to, to come together to build the, the world that we imagine. Um, so I always, and I think in this moment, we're in a climate that is affording people the ability to do more of that. There are more investors than ever than when I started who are coming in at different stages, specifically the earlier stages. Mm-hmm. And I think you can find different flavors of investors now who are committed to a vision of the world that aligns with yours. So. Um, I'm also heartened by women of color, specifically black women, and are the fastest growing, you know, demographic in terms of, you know, creation of new businesses. Um, now what remains to be seen and what I'd like to keep track of and hopefully participate in the success of for other people is the scaling of those businesses and those visions, um, for, you know, this emergent, our emergent sort of demographic too. Um, so I'm always thinking about you know, how can Care Academy really wrap its arms around a really big challenge? Um, And so for me, it's not necessarily even about, you know, the fundraising milestones per se, but how do we grow a company alongside um, the stakeholders who trust us, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it is, when you're talking about our caregivers, the caregivers who trust us with their time and building their talent and their skills and representing that, or the the customers, their employers who purchase into Care Academy um, as an act of like one trust and faith yeah. that you know we're helping them to build a really strong workforce. And so I think about it more so than in, in that. And I think all things sort of flow from that, but that's really like where my a lot of my focus is. We as a company have the privilege and you know I am I am privileged to have you know, dozens of people who work with us and who share so much of this vision of building, um, you know, a a company, a a platform that is paradigm shifting, right? Mm -hmm. That really orients to the idea that everyone is a part of healthcare. And how do we do the big job of enabling people to uh, show up as 
the healthcare interventionists in the lives of loved ones, of community members, uh, and of themselves, right? Um, I believe in education, you know, even back yeah. to our, our Teacher America days, education as the enabler, the greatest enabler, right, for, for, for people. Yeah. Um, and we have the privilege of providing education that is accessible mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that shows up as life-changing. Um, we announced uh, a couple months ago that, you know, Care Academy now is eligible for college, you know, credit towards a degree, right? I want to further amplify that. I want, and I, 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 I hope, and I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for Care Academy to be the centerpiece of a whole paradigm shift of who gets to, um, you know, show up within healthcare, um, and 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 how people get to do healthcare and how we make healthcare more accessible, right? Um, and so I, I'm really excited about what's the comfort for Care Academy and really um, for this company to lead the charge in, in, in changing and reframing who has access to the skills of healthcare and who does healthcare. I would like to extend a special thank you to the CEO of Care Academy, Helen Adelson, for spending time with the joy of learning. Our time together was meaningful and impactful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. With me, it is always about connection and elevating the voices of others. If there are any questions, please send me an email at info at takejoyandlearning.com. Or if there is a compelling story that you want to share, I am open and ready to listen. And so my hope is that you are able to find joy in the small moments each and every day.